If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Now, in our study in the book of Revelation, we find ourselves in chapter 20, and what is common, commonly referred to as the Millennial Kingdom chapter, all right? Uh, as we have said before, the word millennium comes from two Latin words, mille and annum, which together literally means a thousand years, a phrase that's repeated six times in this one chapter. Um, and in my mind, the Holy Spirit did that through the Apostle John to teach us that this is not an allegorical period. This is a literal thousand years that is in view here. So let's look at verse 1. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. How uh, ignorant we often are to how much the devil controls the politics of this world through his deception and his demonic influence. I mean, he isn't called the God of this world for nothing. Now, he's always at work uh, through politics and, and nations and governments. He's always at work promoting his agenda, which is to keep people away from God, get them so involved in sin and selfishness and everything else they don't have time for god they're so busy satisfying the flesh they have no desire to to um, live for the spirit but there are times when the devil unleashes something that seems to go beyond what is just even normal normal deception deluding of people there seems to be times in history where the devil has captured whole nations and has basically turned them into some kind of robots where people start to adhere to, I don't know, an ideology, a principle, something, in it, and they all begin to buy into it. They begin to move in a lockstep way towards this goal or this ideology whatever it might be and it really is something to see we we, we saw it in world war ii uh, nazi germany where the germans who are very educated um very sophisticated group of people suddenly at one time one point went mad they they lost it and they began to move in lockstep following hitler of course who could give two or three hour speeches and hold people spellbound the entire time like he, like it was a kind of a mass hypnotic thing. We see saw the same thing in the late 70s with the Shah of Iran. Iran at that time you was very pro-West, very prosperous country. Then all of a sudden the country went crazy, began to, uh, to embrace radical Islam, um, began to kill those that were not converting to Islam, drove the Shah out, 
and today Iran is a very, um, well, it's a very Islamic country with all of that that goes with it. Um, we, we, we saw this with the COVID lockdowns, how the whole world went crazy. I'm not so sure it's gotten over it completely. But I was listening to a very well-known doctor of medicine who said that this phenomenon, and the way he put it was that people have gone, he, he didn't say a spiritual thing, he said they've all gone crazy. He said that you can go to any continent in the world, it's not like it's happening in America or Australia or Canada. You can go to the largest city in America, to the smallest village in Africa, and the same mindset has taken hold of people. Now, as he's talking, I'm thinking it's a demonic thing. If you're interested, Google and study a little bit something called mass formation psychosis. Mass formation psychosis. And you'll understand what I'm talking about. Because I think that was at the heart of a lot of these times in history that we're talking about. And I'm not going to get into it because that's not my goal tonight. But to me, I don't think anything better sums up what we have seen in the last couple of years. Going back, you know, a generation or so. Um, not just in America, but in the world. But I think when the Antichrist shows up, because he'll have supernatural power, and that won't just be power to do miracles, which he will have the supernatural power to do. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 9, right? Um, the Antichrist will have the power to work lying signs and wonders, real miracles that are designed to deceive. And we're going to see the world. Well, we're not. We're going to be in heaven. Because I believe the rapture will happen before he shows up. He's here, I believe. He's around. Uh, but before he rises to power on the world scene, the church is going to be out of here. But it's, it's going to be amazing to see him take what we're talking about to a whole new level. Where he is going to be able to not only uh, perform miracles, but have the ability, the, the trans, almost the um, hypnotic ability to bring people in, into a kind of a trance-like state where not only do they believe in him, well, it will become a religion. He is going to, at one point, outlaw all religions and begin a whole new religion where he himself is worshipped as God. So it's not like it's going to be like a religion. It will be a religion. And a religion like we have never seen where you're going to have all of his followers so zealous to promote him as a god and so against anyone who will not worship him as god that they will take it upon themselves to kill not just persecute but to murder in the name of righteousness remember what jesus said in john 16 verse 2 there's coming a time he told his disciples there's coming a time when those who kill you will think they're doing god's service doesn't necessarily have to be the god of the bible service though a god's service in this case, the Antichrist, who can will declare himself to be God. But Satan controls the political systems of this world. How? Because God allows him to. 
And the more a person or a people move away from God in their hearts and then through their lives, the more God allows them to be deceived. You know, men love darkness rather than light because they want to do evil. God says, well, here's the evil, here's the darkness. You love darkness so much you don't deserve the light. I'm going to withdraw my light, my truth, and you go ahead and enjoy the darkness. People don't want to receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. God says, okay, then here. I'll, I'll allow the devil to give you strong delusions that you can believe that you will believe lies. You can read Romans chapter one verses twenty four to thirty two, because God said that those who refuse to worship the Creator, but instead worship the creation, and of course the biggest part of the creation is self, humanism. When people worship them, worship themselves as God, their pleasure becomes uppermost. What feeding their flesh becomes the most important thing of all. And God says, and at that point, God says that if you won't come to me, then I will give you over to a debased mind. And you will do the things that you desire to do, things that you think are the right things, fulfilling things, but things that will destroy you. And that's what we're seeing in our country. The more our country has gotten away from God, the more the doors have been open. For the demonic to come in my wife and i were out somewhere at a supermarket or something and the halloween stuff is out now i hate halloween uh, ever since i became a christian i've hated halloween can't wait for it to be over but you know how it's growing up on halloween you had you know you had your you know i don't know you had your scary you know uh, black cats and your your skeletons and things, you know. Um, but there was like a kind of a childish quality to it, you know, because they were kind of reaching out to the kids. If you've gone out this year so far, all of the Halloween stuff is very dark, kind of geared towards adults, um, very wicked. There's nothing, uh, there's no childlike quality about any of it, uh, which I understand in general, but um, we're getting more and more into the darkness. And um, we're going to see, the, the world is going to see this reach a crescendo when the Antichrist comes on the scene. But uh, this delusion, this deception, this embracing of satanic lies again will reach a climax during the Antichrist reign. We've been studying about this very thing in this book, Revelation. Uh, again, I don't believe we'll be here to see the Antichrist rise to power, but God told us what's coming. And as we share some of this stuff with our unsaved loved ones and friends and whatever, if they don't get saved now, maybe they will when it begins to unfold. I don't know. But God's allowing it because it is fulfilling His purposes. Uh, we're coming to the return of Jesus Christ very quickly. Um, so how does that cause us to look at our nation? Well, in Philippians 3, verse 20, Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And the word for citizenship is a Greek word that we get our English word politics from. Our politics are in heaven. Now, hear me out. That doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't get involved in earthly politics or shouldn't run for political office or shouldn't even vote. I believe we are citizens of two kingdoms jesus said well 
Peter said, uh, and Paul, uh, in different places in the New Testament said that, you know, we are to be good citizens. We are to pray for those in authority, right? Uh, we are to obey the laws of our land as much as we can, unless they tell us we can't go to church or read our Bibles or share our faith. Then we must obey God rather than men, right? But until that day comes, we try to be good citizens. As Jesus said, we give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God, but they're not equal. They're not equal. Above and beyond any loyalty I have to America, and I do love my country, and I thank God for allowing me, and I'm sure you do too, to be born in a country where we've had so many blessings and freedoms and so, and, and, and so on. But my main loyalty belongs to my God. And I'm looking for my Savior, the King of kings, to come to the earth and to come soon. Where when he comes, he is going to establish a kingdom. And uh, as the Bible says, and I think Revelation 11, at that time the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. And Jesus will reign forever and ever. That's what we're waiting for. Until that time, we pray for our country. Because unless God begins to move, unless God begins to revive his church and bring a great awakening to this land, I think we are seeing the death of our country. And I hope that's not true. Nineveh had 40 days, and they repented before judgment, and they repented. I don't think we have less than that. But um, understand, guys, that unlike some religious groups who say, look, the so-called Christian groups say, you know, the world is corrupt. It's controlled by the devil. We shouldn't be a part of it. We shouldn't salute the flag. We shouldn't join the military. Uh, we, we shouldn't um, uh, uh, participate in elections, vote, none of that. It's all corrupt. It's all the devil. Our kingdom is, is in heaven. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, though. There's a balance. A lot of people can't seem to walk the balance. Either it's one or the other. Either it's complete disassociation from society, or they get so politically active they forget the kingdom of God. You know? I thoroughly reject kingdom now theology, dominion theology. We talked about this. I'm not going to go into it again. The Bible doesn't say the church is going to clean up the world to the point where Jesus comes back and takes over the utopia we've created. That's not what the Bible teaches. This world is going to become more and more corrupt until the king of kings, Jesus Christ, comes and he brings his kingdom and he'll clean it up. Our job is not to clean up the fish pond. It's just the fish in it. Jesus will clean it up when he comes. Amen. So Revelation 20, verse 3. This angel grabs hold of the devil, binds him with some kind of a chain, and he casts him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. The bottomless pit, guys, spoken of in Revelation 9, verse 2, and chapter 20, verses 1 and 3, is not the same as hell. It's not the same as hell, although it could very well be a part of Hades. We'll talk more about that uh, next time. But uh, it's not hell, but it could be a part of Hades. 
it is the place where the worst fallen angels are presently incarcerated. Jude verse 6, angels which did not keep their proper habitation, God is reserved in chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day. What is that a reference to? What are these angels who didn't keep their proper estate but went after strange flesh? Read Genesis 6. Where the, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were fair. Sons of God, a term for angels. In this case, fallen angels. Daughters of men, human women. And they cohabitated with these women. And they had offspring, who the Bible calls Nephilim, which means fallen ones. The devil tried to preemptively keep Messiah from ever coming by corrupting the human race with demon seed. God thwarted that by keeping one family genetically pure. Noah and his family, eight people. And God had Noah and his family build the ark. At one point they went inside. God brought a flood, a worldwide flood. It wasn't a local flood. I, I don't understand. Some of these people who have these theological degrees, and they come up with this ridiculous nonsense. Well, you know, the flood wasn't universal. It was a local flood. Well, if there's a local flood, why do they have to build the ark? Move out of town, move out, out of the area. If this one valley area, Mesopotamian Valley, is going to get flooded, well, just move out of the area. What are you going to build an ark for, right? No, this was a worldwide flood as God destroyed the human race. All flesh had corrupted itself upon the earth, man and animals. And God wiped the earth clean and started over again to repopulate it through Noah and his family. As God said in Genesis chapter 6, they were the only family that God had kept pure um, in their genealogies. They were not corrupted by any demoncy. Now, that's my opinion. There's a lot of folks, they think that's crazy, that view. Um, you know, the sons of God, that's the godly line of Seth, saw the daughters of men, that was the ungodly line of, of um, I, I forgot, one of Adam's kids, right? Uh, so believers and unbelievers, were, that was the issue. It wasn't angels cohabitating with human women. That's ridiculous. No, it was, you know, it was uh, believers marrying unbelievers. Well, I don't know any believers marrying unbelievers that produce Nephilim. Strange creatures samson was not not samson but goliath was one of these six fingers on each hand six toes on each foot a little hard to find gloves and shoes but yeah and these were these were strange beings but this place called the bottomless pit is um where the worst fallen angels are presently incarcerated, a place so horrific that the demons spoken of in Matthew 8 begged Jesus to allow them to go into a herd of swine rather than to be sent to this place. The term bottomless is translated from the Greek word abyssos, mostly pronounced abuso, and literally means without depth. Without depth. Guys, the only place on all the earth where there could be a bottomless pit is in the center of the earth because in the exact center of the earth, every direction is up. 
There is no bottom. This place, I believe, is in the center of the earth. We know from chapter 9, as we've already studied, there is a door somewhere on the surface of the earth that opens to a shaft that leads down to the bottomless pit. And Revelation 9 tells us at one point, this door is going to be opened and demon locust-like creatures are going to climb up the shaft, out the door, onto the earth, and are going to sting, because they're going to have tails like scorpions, they're going to sting unbelievers during one part of the tribulation period for five months. And during those five months, the people who have been stung, again, unbelievers by these demon creatures, they're going to be in such pain that they're going to want to die, but they won't be able to commit suicide. Can you imagine that? My pastor used to talk about this period of time. He called it when death takes a holiday. Can you imagine putting a gun to your head as somebody bitten by one of these scorpion-like creatures? You're in such agony, agonizing pain, you put a gun to your head, pull the trigger, blow half your head off, but you're still alive? Or you jump off, jump off a tall building, hit the ground, and your body's broken, but you're still alive? Now, verse 3 is interesting. But after these things, he, Satan, must be released for a little while. Wow. Uh, the question is, why does God release Satan after a thousand years are over? Why doesn't he just lock him up, throw away the keys? For the same reason, he was allowed to roam free in the first place. Because the devil is serving the purposes of God. Look. You can't have free will if there's only one choice. Just like you can't have free elections if there's only one candidate on the ballot. God has given us a free will, but then by necessity he had to provide a choice. Satan is that choice. Now I know at this moment some would say, well, no, no, uh-uh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God or Satan. Uh, you know, I'm neutral on the subject, right? I I'm not... For either one. Well, as Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're what? Against me. By default. Atheists think that they're neutral from all this. That really, uh, this doesn't affect them because they don't believe in any of it. But that doesn't make reality go away because you don't believe in it. But guys, Satan is not cast into hell immediately, as we see here in the beginning of chapter 20, where he's bound for a thousand years. He's not cast, he could have been cast into hell immediately, but God didn't do that. Why didn't he do that? Because God still has one more task for Satan to perform. So he temporarily imprisons him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And according to Isaiah 24, verses 21 to 23, Satan's demonic cohorts will also be in prison with him at this time. I mean, you know, come on. You're going to have a thousand-year millennial kingdom, paradise on the earth, and Satan's going to be running around? Uh, I don't think so, you know. So the Lord takes him, binds him, and his little demon army, which is not so little, but they're all bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. Because God, but then God's going to let Satan free after the thousand years. Why? Because he has a, one more task for him to perform. Um, what is that task? Well, look at verse 
7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. Now, hold on to that. We'll come back to that next week. All right, because we're not going to get to it right now. But there's a reason. And we'll talk about this at length next time. Uh, what does this mean? Satan is going to be let loose and go out and deceive the nations. Yeah. And we'll talk about what that's all about next time. But again, Revelation 20, verse 4. John said, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. On these thrones were those who judged. Who are they? Who are the ones on these thrones? Well, I actually believe there are three groups of people on these thrones. A lot of thrones. Three groups of people. The first group is the Old Testament saints. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, you can read the whole chapter at your leisure, but I'd like to focus on verses 18, 22, and 27. Daniel 7, verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. Now, guys, this is talking about the Old Testament saints. How do I know that? Because the church was hidden from the Old Testament saints from the Old Testament, the people there, right? The church was a mystery. It was something God hid from the Old Testament um, believers. So when Daniel talks right here, the church has not been revealed. Therefore, when it talks about the saints of the Most High, it's talking about Old Testament believers, Moses, Daniel, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on, right? But the saints of the Most High, Old Testament saints, shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. The time came when Messiah, the Ancient of Days, comes, possesses the kingdom, all right, Verse 27, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So guys, we're being told that when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom on the earth, well, the first group that we're going to look at uh, that reigns with him, sits on thrones, and so on, are going to be those Old Testament saints that um, we have been reading about for many years, right? That's the first group. Who are the next group? There's three. Well, the second group that is in view here in Revelation 20, verse 4, would be, yes, the Old Testament saints, then the church saints. The church saints. Look at Matthew 19. Verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, his disciples, the twelve apostles, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, others when the kingdom is established, then the Son of Man sits, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, uh, 
you who have followed me, and of course he's not talking about down through the centuries, those who had followed him during his earthly ministry. You who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we know the apostles are going to be on thrones. Now let me just say this. Remember when Judas betrayed the Lord and eventually went out and hanged himself. In Acts chapter 1, they felt the need to quickly replace him. And so they chose a couple of guys who would make good candidates for apostles, cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 12, right? I'm sure he was a great guy. I'm sure he was a great guy. I'm not convinced <laughs> he's the guy God wanted to replace Judas. You know, be careful you don't limit God. God, I got two job offers. Which one do you want me to take? Maybe God's saying, neither. The job I have for you is not here yet, but be patient. They quickly chose the 12th apostle, but then a few years later, here comes a guy named Saul of Tarsus, okay? Of course, became Paul the apostle, but... Paul, but he came on the scene and he said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. Nice try, guys. Now you meant well. But it wasn't God's will that Matthias be the 12th apostle. Paul called himself an apostle, one born out of due time. I wasn't with the original 12. He caught a lot of heat for that, by the way. A lot of people didn't believe he was an apostle because he wasn't with the original group. And Paul said, well, that's true. I was a Johnny-come-lately apostle, you might say. Um, you know, one born out of due time. I wasn't born again with the rest of them. I came later, but I am an apostle, and Paul proved it by saying, look, have, have I not seen the risen Christ? Are not the works of an apostle wrought through me, the miracles? Paul says, this is um, validation of my apostleship, and so on. But turn to 1 Corinthians 6. So we know the 12 apostles are going to be on thrones in the kingdom, but it won't be limited to them. Uh, with regard to New Testament believers being on thrones and judging with the Lord Jesus in the Millennial Kingdom. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, where Paul says to, now to the Corinthian church, Do you not know that the saints, these will be all New Testament saints throughout the church age, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge in the smallest matters? Why? You're going to be judging the world. You can't work some of this stuff out among yourselves in the church. you got to go to secular courts, stand before unbelieving judges. I mean, come on. You guys are going to be judging the whole world at one point, you know? Um and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? No doubt speaking of fallen angels. 
how much more things that pertain to this life. I want you to turn to Revelation 2. I'm going to look at two passages. Now remember, Revelation 2 and chapter 3, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. So we're talking to churches now. No, they weren't all as good as each other. Some were better than others, right? But they were all churches. And two that I want to zero in on, uh, first of all, Revelation 2, verses 26 and 7, uh, the church of Thyatira, where the Lord Jesus said in verse 26, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Speaking to any Christians in the church age. Turn over to Revelation 3, verse 21. This would be the letter to the Laodiceans. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Don't let overcome, he who overcomes, throw you. A lot of people read into that. <clears throat> the only way you overcome is to live a holy life. What does that mean? Well, I got my list here. The hundred things you can't do to be holy, and so on and so forth, right? First John 5, 5, who is he who overcomes? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's how you overcome. You believe in Jesus Christ. So we're going to see these thrones contain, first of all, Old Testament saints. Secondly, New Testament or church saints. And then there is a third group that are going to be sitting on thrones, judging, ruling with Christ, and they are tribulation saints. Back to Revelation 20, verse 4. John said, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. In other words, Old Testament saints and church saints. That's what's in view there. Then I saw this would be a third group. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast, the Antichrist, or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they, all three groups, lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And guys, who will these reign over? Who, who will we, I should say, reign over? During the Millennial Kingdom, God is going to cause the earth, I believe, to become, well, I believe personally, God's going to return the earth to the way it was before the fall. Um where there's going to be a paradise. Uh, I, I'm not a scientist, but I know that the earth is, what, tilted at 22 and a half, 23 and a half degrees. This creates different, different climactic zones and things, right? Um, but the earth wasn't always that way, where you had very harsh regions of severe cold and heat. Uh, archaeologists have found in Siberia, buried deep within the ice, woolly mammoths. And when they cut these woolly, frozen, 
when they cut these woolly mammoths open, they found tropical vegetation in their digestive tracts. At one time, the climate in Siberia was very tropical. Something happened that these creatures were flash frozen so quickly, the vegetation in their digestive tracts didn't even have time to be broken down. What happened? The windows of heaven came down. God tore down the canopy that surrounded the earth, this moisture blanket that, uh, that um, uh, filtered out cosmic radiation from outer space um, and created a terrarium effect where sunlight would come in from one side and it was bounced in, in this kind of a terrarium environment where there was a kind of a, a blanket, if I could put it that way, over the earth, which kept, you know, even in places where uh, was the other side of the earth, as far as the sun was not shining and directly in that side, there was a twilight. It was a, the light was diffused and it gave prolonged periods of light, even when today, uh, the earth would be in darkness on that side, like, you know, uh, like we're moving into right now, on the other side of the earth, the sun is coming up, right? Our sun's setting, their sun's coming up in China, other places. But during uh, the time uh, before the flood, you had this increased light, and they have found in the fossil records asparagus plants 12 feet tall. Incredibly sized things. The earth was not always as it is today. And I believe that, you know, during the Millennial Kingdom, God is going to make it like it was before the fall, uh, before the flood, the antediluvian world. And um, it's going to be a paradise, and you're going to have a great population explosion. A thousand years where death is very rare. Not gone, but very rare. Man can live anywhere on the earth. Not limited to any localities how many people do you think with death being rare how many people you think would be born uh populate the earth after a thousand years well we're going to talk about that in a, in a couple weeks i think hundreds of billions i saw an interesting thing i couldn't believe it uh i'm going to probably do it an injustice because i doing this for memory but I saw a graphic where you could take the population of the entire planet and put it in Texas if, if you wanted to give everyone, I don't know, how big a plot of land. It was amazing to me. And I thought, wow, you, you could fill the earth. If you could get 6 billion people in Texas. Now, I, I might be misstating some of that, but it was incredible. Something, something along those lines. Can you imagine how many people you could fit in a world that was a paradise, a kind of a tropical environment? Over a thousand years, quite a bit. So we're going to reign over people who have been born during the Millennial Kingdom. We will have our glorified bodies. We won't get married anymore. We won't have kids. But all the people that were alive when Jesus returned that escaped the Antichrist, who are believers now, not unbelievers, they're going to be cast into Hades when Jesus returns. But every person who was a believer in Christ and made it, was not killed by the Antichrist, made it when Jesus returns, 
He is going to bring them into the kingdom. They'll have their physical bodies. They will marry. They will have kids. Their kids will grow and have kids. And you're going to see a tremendous uh, population explosion on the earth during this thousand years, right? We as believers now, Old Testament and um, New Testament and tribulation saints, we are going to live around the, the world and we are going to be ruling in these other areas. Jesus, of course, will be the king of kings. He'll be ruling over everything, but we will be under him, ruling uh, under his authority. So how do you know that? Well, there's several verses, but I'll give you one. Uh, Luke 19, remember the parable of the Minas, where uh, a certain wealthy man called, his, called ten servants to him, gave each one of them a mina, and then went on a long journey, right? What's a mina? It's a measurement of uh, money. Uh, from what I understand, roughly 60 shekels. So he goes on this long journey, gives each servant, ten servants, one mina apiece. Comes back after who knows how long. Calls the first servant. He said, Master, you gave me a mina. I've invested it wisely. My one mina has become ten. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. Now you can rule over ten cities. Well, Master, the second man said, you gave me a mina, I've invested it wisely, and I've created, it, it made five minas. Well done, good and faithful servant. You're going to be ruler over five cities in the kingdom, is the idea. How faithful we are in serving our Lord. Whatever ministry he's given you to do. I mean, it doesn't have to be uh, Billy Graham-like or Luis Palau-like or whatever. Whatever God, used to be a Sunday school teacher, it could be um, just whatever. Whatever God calls you to do, if you do it faithfully for the Lord with all your heart, you're going to be rewarded as much as anybody who served the Lord. It's required of a servant that they be found what? Faithful. We've associated numbers with success. God never does that. And read the seven letters of seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 again. Some of the biggest churches, Sardis, Laodicea, the world would think they were tremendous successes. They were wealthy and had a lot of people, and God rebuked both, condemned them both for being abject failures. Told Laodicea, you think you're, you know, you're, you're wealthy and you have need of nothing and this and that. You think you're so successful. In my eyes, you're wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. And then to two very small struggling churches. Um, Smyrna, Philadelphia. He says, in the eyes of the world, you come across as failures. Maybe even in your own eyes, you think you're failures. In my eyes, you're very rich. You've been faithful. It's always required of a steward that they be found faithful. It's never about the numbers. Unfortunately, too many pastors have made it all about what some have called nickels and noses. Nickels and noses. And that's a shame. Because my pastor taught me, taught all of us Calvary pastors. He, he taught us that um, our responsibility is not to build big churches. It's to make strong disciples. And you make strong disciples by teaching God's word faithfully. 
That's how you do it. And then whatever happens, the Lord will add to his church daily those being saved. If Jesus Christ said, Phil, Calvary Elk Grove is uh, on my list to be uh, 2,000 people, he'll do that. I don't worry about numbers. And if the Lord Jesus said to me, Phil, this is really all I have for you. Just be faithful. Keep being faithful. That's good enough for me. I don't want to try to be anything Jesus has not called me to be. But I sure don't want to fall short of what he wants me to do. We all have to understand that, right? Um, so Revelation 20, verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, guys, the order of this statement has confused many over the years as to what John is saying, because it sounds like what John is saying is the dead who did not live again until the thousand years were finished are those that belong to the first resurrection. Sounds that way. I actually had a woman years ago tell me that. That, well, it's obvious from what John is saying that those that didn't live again until the thousand years were, were uh, over, those were the ones who were involved in the first resurrection. Let me rearrange John's statement so that what he is actually saying becomes clear. You ready? Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I, then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. But the rest of the dead, the unrighteous dead, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Those who are a part of the first resurrection are those that were believers. Old Testament saints, church saints, uh, tribulation saints. Guys, the Jews believed in one great resurrection of the dead, as do many Christians. But if there is a first resurrection, there has to be at least one more after it. Right? It's obvious. If you call something the first resurrection, it implies there has to be at least one more after it. Jesus taught in John's Gospel, chapter 5 verses 28 and 29 that there would be two great resurrections the resurrection of life believers and the resurrection of condemnation unbelievers and here in revelation 20 verse 5 we learn that they are separated by at least a thousand years now with regard to the physical bodily resurrection of believers which jesus called the resurrection of life in john 5 and paul tells us in first corinthians 15 that this resurrection also called the first resurrection here in revelation 25 uh, verse 5 understand what i'm saying the first resurrection is not an event it's a category if you don't get that you're going to be messed up the first resurrection Paul tells us this clearly. In fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus said there's two great resurrections. 
the resurrection of life, believers, and the resurrection of condemnation, unbelievers. But in the category of the resurrection of life, also known as the first resurrection, it's not a single event. It's not a single event. It's a category that contains multiple resurrections of believers. How do I know that? Because of what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 20, where Paul says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, Adam, by man, Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 23. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. The word for order in verse 23. But each one, or in other words, each group, will be resurrected in his own order. The word order there is the Greek word tagma, and it means a series of succession. A series of succession. The word originally referred to military rank. Military rank. In other words, the order of importance. Paul is telling us that the physical slash bodily resurrection of believers doesn't happen all at once, but consists, listen, in a series of successive resurrections starting with Jesus Christ, who was the first fruits. Remember what Paul just said here in verse 20? But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Um, when Paul talks about Christians falling asleep, he's talking about them dying. But death for a believer in Christ is not the same as death for an unbeliever. I mean, death is not permanent, physical death. Uh, that's why Paul likened it to sleeping. When you sleep, you're out for a while, but you wake up. Well, that's kind of how resurrection is going to be for believers. The body will sleep in the grave, but at one point it's going to be, quote-unquote, awakened to be resurrected. That's the idea, though. But Jesus Christ is the first one to rise from the dead under the category of the first resurrection. As the Lamb of God, Jesus died on Passover, right? He arose from the dead three days later on Sunday. Sunday was known as the Feast of First Fruit. Now you can check all this out in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 to 14. Passover, we'll talk about more, more about this on Sunday actually. Passover fell on the 14th day of Nisan. Some call it Nisan, but I've always pronounce it Nizan, okay? Um, Passover fell on the 14th day of Nizan. Starting on the 15th and running for seven consecutive days was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. During that week, those seven days of Unleavened Bread, you had a Sunday. That Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits. If you read the passage in Leviticus 23, uh, when it talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then moving into Feast of Firstfruits, uh, it says, um, during the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the day after the Sabbath will be the Feast of Firstfruits. Sunday. Sunday. 
Jesus Christ was crucified on Passover. He was the Passover lamb, sinless lamb of God, who died for our sins. Buried. Three days later, he arose on Sunday, which was the Feast of Firstfruits. What was the Feast of Firstfruits? I'll talk about this and we'll close. The Feast of Firstfruits was an agricultural feast primarily. Again, happened in the spring. That's when Nizan took place. That was uh, corresponds to our um, uh, March-April okay, period of time. On the Feast of First Fruits, what was celebrated was the first shoots of the barley harvest beginning to poke their way out of the ground. Barley was a winter crop, buried in late, uh, planted in late fall, harvested in the, the spring. And the idea was what God had said is when the first shoots of the barley harvest begin to poke their way out of the ground, you go and you cut them down on the Feast of First Fruit. You bring them to the temple. You offer them to God. The priest will wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. The idea is I was, I'm presenting the first fruits to God. I'm honoring God with the first of what he's blessed me with, right? And they did this with the first of their animals being born, first of their children, except the animals were sacrificed to God. God never asked for human sacrifice, so they had to redeem the firstborn with a half shekel, I think, because God never at any time uh, asked for any kind of human sacrifice. But God wanted to drive into their thinking that he has to be first. And if a person or a people makes God first, they give him the first fruits of the tithes of whatever they make. First fruits of their fields and their herds. Uh, you're putting God first. Uh, as you put God first, God then responds by blessing. Any person who puts themselves before God is in a very bad place because their life is never going to go right. You're, a person who puts themselves first and God's an afterthought, their life will never go right. When God is at the center, and God even communicated this when the children of Israel were still in the wilderness, right? When the Shekinah glory began to move, the pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, when it came to a stop in the wilderness, that was the cue, set up camp. And God told them they were to set up camp in a very specific way. Three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south. He gave the names of the tribes. Three tribes to the east, three tribes to the west. All camp facing inward. Because from an aerial perspective, if you look down, there was a helicopter in those days, and you were able to look down, you would see God's people, and then at the very center, the very heart of the nation, was God Almighty. The last thing they saw before they entered their tents at night to go to sleep, they saw God. The first thing they saw when they exited their tents in the morning, they saw God. God wanted them to be completely absorbed with his presence. And this affected everything. And the Feast of First Fruits was one of those feasts that God gave the people so that they would always remember that if you want to be blessed, put me first. The tithes, the first fruits, was all about giving God first what he had given them. And if they would give to God the first fruits of their harvests, then God would respond later by giving them an abundant harvest at the time of the great harvest. 
This was just the beginning, the first fruits of the harvest, right? Even so, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was God's assurance to us that we shall also be raised from the dead one day as part of a great future harvest. Jesus said in John 14, verse 19, Because I live, you will live also. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it guaranteed that all of his followers would someday rise from the dead as well. Listen, and we'll have to close. Referring to Jesus as the first fruits of those who will be raised to eternal glory doesn't mean that Jesus was the first person ever to rise from the dead because we know from the Old and New Testaments there were people that were, uh, were raised from the dead in both the Old and the New Testaments before Jesus was raised from the dead. But his, he's the, um, uh, his was unique in the sense that uh, they were raised from the dead, Lazarus will say. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again, right? But Jesus, when he rose from the dead, rose with a glorified body. And he never dies. Will never die again. Okay? We are going to follow in that pattern. Um, we may die, although I'm rooting for the rapture, okay? And therefore, we'll be the generation that doesn't actually taste physical death. But if we do, when Jesus comes at the rapture, he will resurrect us, give us a glorified body, and we will never, ever die again. All because of what he did. All because he was the first fruits, and God accepted his sacrifice and guaranteed the rest of us that because we believe in Jesus, even as he was raised from the dead, never to die again, someday we will be raised from the dead, never to die again. So we'll have to leave it there. As always, I don't I haven't finished what I'd like to finish, but that's okay. We'll come back, God willing, next time and pick it up. Father, we thank you for our time in your word tonight. We thank you that um, your spirit has given us the, the blessing to be able to study openly your word. That we're not afraid that at any moment armed guards could break through these doors and take us off to prison somewhere. Uh, that time might be coming, I don't know, but thank you. We ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. And we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.